Okay, so our first group of disorders, um, uh, as addressed in your textbook chapter, is um, disorders of um, emotion. Wait. Yeah, that's what they call it, disorder of emotion. I doubted myself for a second there. Um, so uh, in this group, um, they uh, include things having to do with anxiety, trauma, um, um, uh, mood disorders, uh, bipolar disorders. There's actually a lot here, right? Um, <clears throat> so let's see, uh, if we start on slide number six, um, tell you about some of the uh, diagnoses that would fall into this group. Um, let's see, uh, the first diagnosis uh, to look at is generalized anxiety disorder. Uh, generalized anxiety disorder um, uh, has been called that for a long time. They haven't changed the name or anything. Um, and, uh, and usually people will just shorten that as GAD uh, for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, let's see, uh, in generalized anxiety disorder, a person worries, and they worry a lot. Uh, they tend to worry about uh, a lot of different kinds of things. It's not one particular thing that they're worried about. And that's why this is called generalized, right? Uh, the opposite of generalized is specific, right? And we'll see later on where people can have some specific kinds of fears and anxieties. But here we're looking at generalized. What that means is that um, a person with GAD is going to spend a lot of their time, a lot of their day, uh, kind of shut down with worry. They're just worried about stuff and ruminating about stuff. Um, but it's not anything in particular that they're worried about. Um, they may spend some time worried about um, uh, their own uh, financial situation. Then that gets to be too difficult for them. And then they switch and they worry about their children's health. Um, and then that gets to be too much. And they switch and they worry about uh, something they saw on the news or something, right? So the common thread here is excessive worry, um, but it's not about any particular thing. And so this has been referred to as a free-floating anxiety, that it's not attached to any particular kind of situation. Um, however, folks with generalized anxiety disorder are going to be worrying a lot, like six, eight hours out of their day taken up with just worrying about stuff. Now, worry tends to be about stuff that's not in your immediate surroundings, right? So they're thinking about things that may happen, that could happen, sometimes uh, thinking about things that have happened in the past, kind of uh, ruminating on stuff from the past, but often worry about stuff that's out of their control. Um, most people with GAD would acknowledge that they worry a lot and they would uh, characterize themselves as worriers, um, but they, um, they often feel like there's nothing they can do about it, that they uh, are just, um, that's just how they are. They just feel like they need to worry about stuff a lot. Um, there are some physical kind of symptoms that go with GAD. Um, usually it's kind of like the person feels keyed up and restless. So they have that uh, kind of sense of restlessness or um, fidgetiness. They may, you know, pace or wring their hands or um, other stuff like that. Um, usually not the uh, kind of physical symptoms that we would see in some, some of these other disorders, like later on with panic attacks and stuff like that. But, um, but uh, this one's mostly about uh, thought aspects of it, cognitive aspects, and that the person is spending a lot of time worrying. Right? Um, <clears throat> uh, generalized anxiety disorder is a diagnosis that, um, that becomes more common as people get older. Um, 
I think I've told you in a couple of contexts, uh, like when we're talking about um, development across the lifespan and stuff like that, that people in old age tend to be happy, right? Uh, that um, that they don't tend to be more likely to be depressed in, um, in late life. Uh, there's actually less incidence of depression. However, there is more incidence of generalized anxiety disorder that people tend to be more worried and concerned about stuff that's outside of their control. This one does tend to go up. Now, of course, it's possible to have both. You can have ang generalized anxiety and depression. Um, but this is the one that, uh, the part of it that seems to become more common as we get older. Um, the next group of disorders is uh, phobias or phobic disorders. Now, uh, I'm really disappointed in your textbook here because your textbook, like a lot of textbooks, um, <clears throat> you know, gives these tables of lists of uh, uncommon phobias or something, and it's all these silly words with phobia at the end. Um, these are actually not real diagnoses. In the DSM system, in the official system that we use in classification and diagnosis, there's really only three, three diagnoses of phobias. <clears throat> um, those are specific phobia, agoraphobia, and social phobia or social anxiety disorder. Most of the things that people are liable to have an actual phobia about are going to be diagnosed as specific phobia. Notice here the term specific. We just had generalized anxiety disorder where the person's uh, fears and anxieties are about a lot of different kinds of things or nothing in particular. In a specific phobia, a person, it's very specific, right? Uh, it's very clear what the person is afraid of. Um, and that would be the actual diagnosis for, you know, if somebody were afraid of, specifically afraid of cats or dogs or storms or uh, riding in airplanes or uh, dental procedures or a lot of different kinds of things, right? Um, uh, we don't actually need all those words with phobia at the end. Um, you know, uh, those are mostly things that um, people who like to uh, mess with words have made up. And, you know, I like to mess with words, but um, but I don't find that to be uh, very useful. Uh, anyway, um, in a phobia, a person has an irrational fear of a specific object or situation. So let's address some of those specific phobias first, and then I'll get to the other categories of agoraphobia and social phobia. Um, in uh, phobic disorder, a person's fear is to an irrational degree. Now, um, this tricks people up sometimes because a lot of the things that people are liable to have actual phobias about are things that do have some inherent danger. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe spiders or dogs or something like that, right? And, um, uh, and not all fears of those things are necessarily phobias. Um, uh, uh, that, um, you know, there's there's a wide range of normal fear of things, and um, and that's not necessarily a problem. Fear is there for a reason, right? Um, it keeps us out of danger sometimes, um, <clears throat> and a lot of stuff like that. Uh, anyway, but with a phobia, a person's fear has gone beyond a rational to an irrational level, uh, where they're doing stuff to avoid things that are never going to happen anyway, um, or they think that the thing is much more dangerous than it actually is. Um, <clears throat> 
phobias often involve a significant amount of avoidance where people, when people are afraid of something, they will often try to avoid the thing that they're afraid of. This is where um, uh, phobias often start to become maladaptive or interfere with a person's functioning. If you're, um, you know, if you don't like riding in airplanes, but you know, you ride in airplanes, um, then that's not a phobia. Um, <clears throat> uh, if you don't like riding in airplanes and it keeps you from visiting your family or uh, doing or taking a job because you'd have to fly or something like that, then that's getting into that fear causing problems in your life. And that's where we may be looking at a phobia. So, um, so there isn't. So this is an important distinction between a normal range of fear and a clinical phobia. Uh, I mean, people have asked me, uh, you know, isn't everybody afraid of something? Don't do we all have phobias? And my answer to that would be no. Uh, we don't all have phobias. We might all be afraid of something, um, but that's not necessarily uh, a phobia. Um, let me give you a quick example to maybe illustrate that. Um, let's see. Um, I had a um, I had somebody ask me one time about a fear of raccoons, and we were talking, it was a class just like this, we were talking about, you know, where's the line between normal range of fear and a phobia, and he said he had a fear of raccoons, and my first thought was, you know, I don't see that that interferes, that could interfere with somebody's life a whole lot, but I said, well, I don't know, is that something that comes up a whole lot in your life? I don't run into a lot of raccoons, and he's like, oh yeah, they're all over the place. <laughs> I said, really? Okay, well, tell me about that. He says, well, you know, you're riding down the street in your car. You stop at the stop sign. Um, there's bushes over in the median. They're moving around. There's probably raccoons in there. Um, and I said, okay. So he's thinking raccoons are everywhere, right? Um, I said, so what would happen if you saw a raccoon or if a raccoon saw you? And he's like, oh, they're mean things. They would come at you with those teeth. <laughs> and um, so he was thinking that raccoons are also more dangerous than they really are, right? <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> you know, if this was a student in a class, I wasn't going to diagnose him or anything like that. But this is getting more towards what we might think of as a phobia, um, in that um, he's thinking that it's much more common than it really is and much more dangerous than it really is. Uh, and that, you know, it causes him a lot of distress. Um, let's see. Uh, um, if people have true phobias, then, um, then they sometimes can have panic attacks too. Um, but those panic attacks are often going to be only if they're phobic, only if they're in their phobic situation, uh, if that makes sense. So that like, I don't know, a person with a phobia about cats, if there's no cats around, they're probably going to be okay. But if a cat were to jump into their lap, that person is going to have a fear response and could even have a panic attack, right? Um, uh, in that situation. Now, um, the uh, two other kinds of phobias in the DSM are agoraphobia. I'll talk about that one in a minute. Uh, it fits better to talk about it along with uh, a diagnosis that it often goes along with um, a panic disorder. But, um, but there is another phobia diagnosis in the DSM, and that's social phobia, which now is also called social anxiety disorder. It's, got, it's actually got two official names, uh, social anxiety disorder. Um, and um, uh, social phobia is pulled out on its own as a phobia for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it's, uh, it's remarkably common. Um, uh, and two, it can be remarkably impairing for people. You know, if you have a fear of 
cats or high places or raccoons, you know, you can get through a lot of your life without encountering those things. But in social phobia, a person is afraid of um, being evaluated by other people, in a sense. They're afraid of what other people might be thinking about them, or that other people are going to judge them or see them in a poor light somehow. And um, uh, that's rather hard to avoid, uh, and it's um, rather impairing if you do avoid it. Uh, people with social phobia are going to be really nervous and anxious about meeting new people, um, uh, about speaking in public, um, uh, you know, like making a speech or even asking a question in class or giving a speech in class. Uh, making small talk with people. Um, however, the person with um, with uh, uh, social phobia would like to have social interactions with people. They would like to have relationships, but their fear holds them back, and they often uh, end up feeling alone, feeling lonely. Right. So it's the fear that's keeping them from doing that. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, social phobia. Uh, as I said, is remarkably common. Um, it's estimated to affect um, 13 to 14 percent of people at some point in their life. It tends to um, uh, come on in adolescence and be its worst, uh, be at its worst in adolescence and early adulthood. Um, but you know, it can affect people at different kinds of uh, ages. And again, it tends to be fairly impairing. Um, a lot of people end up being lonely. Um, uh, and um, they also tend to be tend to end up underemployed. That is, a lot of people with um, social phobia, you know, they might um, have opportunities for promotions uh, at work, but they just won't even go for them because they're afraid that would mean that they would have to lead meetings or talk to clients or other stuff like that. And so they stay effectively sort of underemployed. We have good treatment for social phobia, social anxiety disorder. Um, <clears throat> there's actually a few different choices for treatment there. There are treatments that um, uh, that only involve medication um, that can be fairly uh, helpful. Um, most of the more effective medications are going to involve some psychotherapy, but um, uh, can be very effective for that. Oops, my dog's sitting on my lap and she's dreaming if you hear anything. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, if we go to the next slide, uh, slide number seven, um, the next anxiety disorder diagnosis is panic disorder. And panic disorder is when people have unexpected panic attacks. Now, if I had said unexpected panic attacks to you before, you probably would have thought, hmm, what the heck does that mean? Who expects to have a panic attack? But if you recall from phobic disorder a few minutes ago, um, <clears throat> if somebody has a fear of cats, and there's no cats around, well, they pretty much know they're not going to have a panic attack. However, if a cat jumps into their lap, they pretty much know they're liable to have a panic attack. So in that sense, a panic attack can be somewhat expected or predictable in certain circumstances and not others, right? <clears throat> that would be with a phobic disorder. On the other hand, for panic disorder, people have panic attacks that seem to come completely uh, at random, unpredictable, People say they just sort of come from out of the blue. That leads to a lot of different kinds of problems. Okay, um, let me tell you about a panic attack, though. Um, panic attacks are essentially uh, fight or flight responses. 
parasympathetic, I'm sorry, sympathetic nervous system activation. Um, it comes on very quickly. It involves a lot of physical kinds of symptoms, uh, feelings of extreme fear, terror. Um, uh, and a person is having physical symptoms like, you know, they feel like they're going to pass out or they're trembling and sweating. Uh, their chest may be tight. They may be feeling like they're going to pass out or throw up. A lot of different kinds of physical symptoms. Almost always there's a desire for the person, the, the person wants to leave wherever they are. There's this desire to get out or escape. Um, and uh, a lot of times when people have panic attacks, uh, it's so frightening and so distressing that they think that they're dying. Um, and uh, they may think they're having a heart attack or an asthma attack. Um, or sometimes uh, I've known people who just kind of thought that they were going, that they were flipping out, going crazy kind of thing, right? Um, there's this idea that you could just one day go crazy. I don't know. And that doesn't really happen. But, um, uh, and, uh, you know, but there's definitely the sense of this is a horrible, scary thing and I'm losing control or I've lost control. Um, and, um, I've never myself had a panic attack, but I've been with people while they were having panic attacks. And I used to treat a lot of people with panic attacks and people, it, it struck me that people would very frequently describe panic attacks in similar kind of ways. And they would often end up saying something like, you know, that was the worst experience I've ever had in my life. I never want it to happen again. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Right. And, um, and the reason I tell you that is because um, I want you to realize that a panic attack for people who really have panic attacks are often life-changing experiences. It's not like you had a bad day or you got stressed out. This is often life-changing because it's like, this was terrifying and it happened before, which means it could happen again. And so a person with panic disorder starts to fear the possibility of having panic attacks. They often don't know why they had that first panic attack. It seemed to come from out of the blue, but they'll try to figure out why and they may associate it with the situation they were in. Um, I don't know, maybe they happen to have a first panic attack while they're in the grocery store. And they're not sure if the grocery store brought it on or something about the grocery store, but maybe they start to avoid the grocery store. Right? This is where the second part of it starts to come in, the idea of agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is essentially avoidance of places or situations where you're liable to lose control, particularly lose control and have a panic attack. For a lot of people who've had panic attacks, they start to avoid places where they've had panic attacks before. But then they often start to think about, uh, imagine what it would be like if they did have a panic attack in a new situation. So maybe you've never had a panic attack in math class, but what if I did? You know, the door is kind of behind the teacher, and so it'd be really be hard to escape or, you know, without calling attention to myself, maybe I just won't go to math class, right? So so this is where agoraphobic avoidance comes in. Um, sometimes people will uh, incorrectly, I think, describe agoraphobia as like a fear of crowds or a fear of big open places or something like that. Um, and it's true that those are often the kind of places that people with agoraphobia will avoid, but it's not the crowds or the big open places that people with agoraphobia are afraid of. What they're afraid of is losing control. They're afraid of having a panic attack and not being able to know what to do about it or, or anything or not being able to escape. Right. And, um, and you've probably heard cases where the, uh, 
uh, agoraphobia leads people to be more or less housebound, where they're, you know, afraid to uh, leave home um, because of this fear of having panic. Um, we have good treatment for panic disorder and agoraphobia. Uh, for this one, um, you know, uh, our treatments that don't involve medications are probably superior to the treatments that involve medications. Um, but um, uh, people will sometimes be given medications for this, but, um, but uh, psychotherapy tends to work better for it. Um, let's see. Um, our next diagnosis here on slide number seven is obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Now, um, obsessive compulsive disorder is one that, I don't know, seems like you hear about it a lot now. Um, uh, sometimes when they do TV or movie portrayals of people with OCD, they kind of get it wrong. Um, uh, they'll sometimes portray like a person who has all kinds of different sorts of obsessions and compulsions. You know, they can't step on cracks. They got to eat their lunch in alphabetical order, they got to use certain utensils, and they got all kinds of rituals. And that's usually not the way it is for people with OCD. People with OCD will usually have like, I don't know, two or three kind of particular things that are a problem for them. So it's not like everybody with OCD has all of the different kinds of obsessions and compulsions, right? Um, in OCD, there are two important components. They are obsessions and compulsions. Obsessions, for the most parts, are thoughts, and compulsions, for the most part, are going to be behaviors, stuff that things that you do. The obsessions seem to come first, um, and essentially what this is about is that uh, the person finds themselves obsessively thinking about stuff that they don't want to be thinking about. Um, you know, they just find that their thoughts just keep going back to the same sort of worry or uh, fear or what if something bad happens or something like that, right? They may try to think about other stuff, but it doesn't work. They keep coming back to these obsessive thoughts. Then what they'll sometimes try to do is engage in some behavior in order to reduce the obsessions. So if I do this thing, then I won't have these obsessive thoughts anymore. Um, that's usually how compulsions seem to start. Uh, and usually there's a logical relationship between the compulsive behavior and the obsessive thinking. So that, for example, if a person's obsessive thoughts are about fears of dirt and germs, fears of, you know, being exposed to germs and, you know, being responsible for making other people sick or something like that, right? Then their compulsion is often going to be somewhat logically related to that, you know, ways of uh, disinfecting or using hand sanitizer or washing your hands a lot or something like that. Unfortunately, what happens, though, is in OCD is that the compulsive behavior doesn't really work. Um, the person may feel a very brief sense of relief, but then the obsessions come back. And so then they engage in the compulsion again. And they get very brief relief, but then the obsessions come back. And so essentially what they get into is this cycle of obsessing and compulsing, which can last hours. Um, and, um, and so they're often doing things over and over and over again that they know doesn't make sense. Um, um, this is the other thing. Uh, folks with OCD in real life um, almost always recognize that their OCD is excessive, that 
Other people don't do this kind of stuff. I wish I didn't have to do this kind of stuff. Why am I like this? This is often kind of the thought process, right? But they still feel very compelled to engage in the behaviors. And people with OCD are going to suffer a lot because of OCD. They're going to um, um, be, uh, you know, using up a lot of their time and energy uh, that they would be doing other stuff, you know, stuck in these cycles of obsessing and compulsive. So this is not a fun disorder to have. Now, in talking about the many different kinds of obsessions and compulsions that uh, are out there, uh, I think it's helpful to kind of group it according to compulsions, because when it comes right down to it, we can group compulsions into um, the three most common kinds of compulsions. And um, those most common kinds of compulsions are, um, <clears throat> are cleaning compulsions, uh, checking compulsions, and counting compulsions, right? Cleaning, checking, counting. Okay, now, first one, cleaning compulsions. Cleaning compulsions aren't always just about cleaning stuff. They could be about rearranging stuff or something. And But notice that that could be related to a lot of different obsessions in different people, uh, that they could end up with the similar kinds of behaviors of rearranging stuff or disinfecting stuff. It might be fear of dirt. It might be fear of germs or getting sick or making other people sick. It could be concern with neatness and order and symmetry and balance and all that kind of stuff. But the end result is that they keep cleaning and rearranging beyond the point of clean, right? Um, uh, uh, well, let's go to checking compulsions. Checking compulsions often uh, are about, um, uh, are related to obsessive doubts uh, or fears that the person has forgotten to do something or has done something wrong. So here you get a lot of possibilities like, uh, you know, if a person fears that they've forgotten to lock their door and somebody's going to go in their house and steal all their stuff, or they've forgotten to turn off the stove and it's going to cause a fire, or they've done something wrong and somebody's going to be mad at them, or they've forgotten to do this, that, or the other thing. And so what they'll often do is check, right, to reassure themselves that, um, that that's not something they really need to worry about, right? Um, uh, however, for folks with OCD, that checking is not enough. Uh, and again, they end up doubting it again or obsessing about it and going back and checking over and over and over again. Um, uh, so, um, so checking compulsions are number two. Um, third most common kind of compulsions are counting compulsions. Now, counting compulsions are going to be where people are counting meaningless things like how many steps they take or ceiling tiles or bricks in a wall or stuff like that. But it also can involve a lot of other things where people might count the number of words that in each sentence as they say it or, um, you know, reading text backwards to themselves and pronouncing it backwards, or um, uh, doing like mental arithmetic and a lot of stuff like that, all kind of under the general label of counting compulsions. Um, and um, and a lot of times it's not so clear that uh, what the counting compulsion is related to as far as obsessive thoughts, because it could be a lot of things. What it comes right down to is that it seems like compulsive counting is really just a way of distracting oneself from some obsessive thought. So, um, so if somebody's doing, you know, counting how many words are in each sentence as they say it, well, you know, that involves some mental energy and some focus in a sense. And so that um, uh, to be able to do that is going to make it less likely that they're going to be able to think about whatever it was that they tend to obsess about, right? So in that case, it could be almost anything. They could conceivably have uh, 
obsessive fears of dirt and germs, but um, you know, distract themselves by counting or reading stuff backwards or something else, right? Uh, so here, uh, the compulsions don't always seem to um, necessarily go along with the obsessions because they tend to be more distractions. Sometimes um, uh, compulsive behaviors can seem to be completely unrelated to the obsessions. And, um, and in that way, in those cases, the, uh, the compulsions can really start to look like um, um, superstitious behaviors. Um, and I think I might have told you some of this when we talked about uh, superstitious behaviors in our chapter on learning. Um, that essentially, uh, you know, a person can do something, engage in some behavior, and in a sense it seems to work for them because the bad thing that they were afraid is going to happen doesn't happen. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think I did tell you about this uh, when we talked about uh, superstitious behavior in uh, learning chapter. Um, if you remember, uh, the story that I used with patients is that, um, you know, that there was a guy tapping a stick on the ground and he thought that he needed to do that in order to keep the lions away. Because as long as he tapped the stick on the ground, it seemed to, to work, right? It seemed to be uh, reinforced. Uh, and, um, and so for a lot of folks with obsessive compulsive disorder, their compulsive behaviors, although it drives them crazy. It seems to work. The The bad stuff that they're afraid of doesn't seem to happen. The house doesn't burn down. You don't get other people sick. Uh, you don't, you know, do all these horrible things that you're afraid are going to happen. So it seems to work, right? We have good treatment for obsessive for people with obsessive compulsive disorder also. Um, very good treatment. Um, but again, I want to point out that, um, that a lot of people uh, want to self-diagnose with OCD just because you have some kinds of, um, you know, quirks or things like that. In I think if we're honest with ourselves, just about everybody has some weird little quirk that they do that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, I don't know, you might like to, uh, put your M separate your M&Ms in color order before you eat them, or you might like to have, uh, a certain, uh, number of pencils when you take a test, or, uh, you might like to have the volume of your car radio on an even number. I don't know what, you know, those kind of things. And at first glance, those seem a little weird, but they're not necessarily compulsions, um, they're more like preferences because you could do without them, right? If I said, here's a bag of M&Ms, but you know what? You can't put them into color order. You just got to eat them as they come out of the bag. You'd be like, dude, give me those M&Ms, <laughs> right? Um, so OCD is much more than that, right? Uh, and OC And people who have OCD suffer with it tremendously, right? So it's not really something to uh, minimize. Um, I'm going to have to stop this segment and pick up uh, in a new segment with um, post-traumatic stress disorder because I'm starting to get to the 30-minute mark here, which is, I think, my max on this application. Okay, you want some uh, bongo drums? Here they come.